This is the Video Junkyard Podcast. A place that appeals to your deepest and darkest fantasies. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. From this nightmare world emerges a fearsome half-man, half-ape with the strength of 20 demons. Okay, we're rolling. Welcome everyone to the first ever Video Junkyard Podcast. I am Eric Branson, one of your hosts, and I would like to introduce the other one, Joe Peterson. Joe, are you there? Hello, I am hey. right here. Welcome uh, to Video Junkyard. How's it going? It's going. It's going pretty good. I'm really glad. I'm, I'm excited we get, finally have a chance to do this. We've been talking about doing something like this for a long time, and uh, it's kind of cool to see it finally come together. So, yeah, so I'm eager to jump in. We've got some cool stuff that I can't wait to share with everybody. So that, I guess, brings me to the first uh, thing on my agenda, and that is, like, Joe, why in the world do we have a podcast? Um, you know, gosh, how... One of the things about about uh, you and I is we've known each other pretty much our whole lives. Um, we know that's not technically possible. Yeah, but, but as close as haven't ever been able to close as it is possible. Yeah, we, we have. I don't even. Yeah, I don't I've never actually, been able to figure out when. Yeah, we've never been able to actually nail down when we met each other, but it definitely was early enough in life that we can't remember. So. Right. So, and most of what we've done throughout our, our lives uh, is talk about movies. I think that was one of the first things we did. We're kind of giving everybody the, the history of the bromance here. Anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, we, we pretty much sit around and talk about movies. And then as we've gotten older, um, you know, gotten married and, you know, living our lives with, you know, with our families and stuff. When we do have a chance Just to get together, it's to, still you know, 90%. Everybody out there in podcast land, we are not actually married. I'm, our wives will probably tell you differently but um i tried yes, making that to... clear but thank you for the backup there um, <laughs> yes. i mean you yeah know, hey but yeah it's um you know it's something that we when we do have a chance to get together that's been you know 90 percent of what we do and since that happens unfortunately less and less nowadays um probably you're the one that's like why don't we just start recording these and it's a pretty good idea so the idea kind of evolved basically that we were sitting around having these long diatribe type conversations about movies and that would just kind of flow in from one thing to the other and just thought hey why aren't why aren't we recording this like you know a lot of people i don't know if a third party pointed out that this would make it, your conversations make an interesting podcast but anyway we're gonna you know do our best to prove them wrong and you know the good intentions of narcissism we are um jumping on board with creating a podcast <laughs> absolutely so, uh <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about what video junkyard is actually about so Video Junkyard was, in, in its essence, an idea just to basically in a, a celebration and appreciation of like cult and classic cinema. We're going to focus mostly on, on lesser known or cult cinema, but I don't know. I did, like This is our first episode, so everybody don't hold us to any of the promises we're making here. This uh, show surely will evolve over time, and uh, who knows where everything will take us, but the idea is um, Video Junkyard, so the lesser-known gems, the bargain bin gold that you'll find digging around in the you know bargain bins at your local Walmart or what have you. 
things you remember from the video isn't it amazing store when how, you were a kid. Isn't it amazing how that's become... I was just going to say, that has replaced the video store is the bargain bin at Walmart. Yes. Yes, it has. And it's funny because living in Chicago, I, I, I live in Chicago, um, we did not have a Walmart locally. But we we local, we got recently got a Walmart in the North Burbs that is within driving distance of here. So, And my DVD collection has started to grow exponentially again because I am you know, spending my $3.50 on buying every crappy horror or action movie that's in there and uh, not watching all of them, but they're taking up space on my shelf. It's, yeah. It is 2018. Yes. You know, th- this may be a podcast that focuses on mostly 80s and 90s horror and sci-fi, but it is 2018, and yes, we are talking about buying DVDs. Yes, we are. And, and I encourage everyone to go that's out and buy point. as many as you can. <laughs> Not really. I but. used to resist DVD. Actually, I, I was I was one of the last holdouts before um, when I, I had amassed this really respectable videotape collection. And in college, I held on to that as long as I could until finally I was like, "Damn, I get I have to start buying DVDs now," just because yeah. they quit making video cassettes. I don't know why I held on to video cassette for so long. Well, it was my I don't know freshman year of college, which would have been probably your junior year. Of, you know, you being a much older man than me. When DVDs really kind of took over, because I remember, I think the first movie I ever owned on DVD was the first Lord of the Rings movie, maybe. The special edition came out, and it only came out on DVD, and so Mm. that got me to buy it. But that was well after many other people were buying DVDs, so I think I was a VHS holdout as well, because I had built this huge collection of movies. Like, I had all of my favorite movies on VHS, and I didn't want those to go away. I didn't want to have to, you know, respend And I'm not buying them again. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I remember the last movie I bought on VHS. Well, I should clarify. In grad school, I lived across from a, a thrift shop that had, like, VHS tapes for 25 cents. And so I I still had a working VCR, so even though I had amassed the DVD collection at that point, mm-hmm. um, I did start reacquiring a whole bunch of, of great movies that we'll be reviewing on here, like Deadly Spawn and stuff. <laughs> I picked up a VHS copy there. But I remember the last VHS tape that I, like, paid money for. And and this is, it, for anybody listening who doesn't know me, uh, feel free to judge. And if you do know me, feel free to judge. Um, <laughs> because the last VHS movie I purchased was the Ben Affleck Daredevil. Okay, yeah, I'm judging you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, please do. And, and, and that was, like, not, like, oh, because I found it in the bargain. But no, brand new, like. Opening, oh, no. like day it was sold that Tuesday. I was yeah, like, I'm there. I'm I'm gonna buy it. And see, that is the two and different I think levels. I watched it once. That's the two different levels, and I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that on this podcast and in in shows to come, or you know, even in this show. But th- there's kind of two levels of appreciation, and that is you know the 1995 VHS tape copy of the Ben Affleck Daredevil and the 350 bargain bin Ben Affleck Daredevil yeah, are yeah, two yeah. very different creatures because one is definitely worth your your time and money, and the other one I'm not so sure about. But Daredevil came out in, like, 2003, and I still bought it on uh, VHS. Yeah. So, well, hey, I yeah. was a VHS. Hold on. I, I, just, I just got rid of my VCR maybe six months ago. I had not used it in about a year before that, but I finally, like, gave in and, like, okay, well, these last, you know, 20 VHS tapes I've been holding on to are going to have to go into deep storage. Actually, I still have a box full of VHS um, Doctor Who episodes on VHS that I bought. And that was one of the reasons I hung on to my VHS or my VCR for so long is because I had this giant box of Doctor Who on VHS. 
which I hung on to as collector's I, items, but I, I don't have any way to watch them anymore. Yeah. So. I, I think I still have a working VCR in a closet somewhere in this house, but I did save a few VHS tapes for nostalgia or just because like you know what i have yet to find this on dvd my copy of being there with peter sellers i have on on vhs um i think i think i still have fear and loathing in las vegas on video for some reason <laughs> yeah. and then um i i think a couple old ones you know some some other old things that are just like the tape itself is special to me i probably still have my copy of jurassic park because i don't know why i would give that up Right, but well, that's that's that yeah, sentimental that's, value. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so but, I uh, mean, to bring it back around to what what's the podcast all about? Like, what are we? Um, short answer mm-hmm. to that is, I'm not exactly sure. I know that we are both people that have an appreciation of cult cinema, have an appreciation of, you know, really the um, so bad they're good genre of movies, and that's kind of where I I when I pitched video junkyard or when we originally conceived of the idea of video junkyard, that's kind of where I was going is it's not only the, the old and forgotten, but also the taking a second look at something that's kind of been dismissed as, as garbage by the large majority of viewers or the powers that be or the rotten tomatoes of the world or whatever. Yeah. And I think another thing to point out too, is, is some of the movies that we're going to be talking about um, and uh, not all of them, certainly, but, but a number of these were, were pretty successful movies for a few weeks, you know, like think about movies today that come out in the theaters that, that have nothing to do with superheroes because those are box office gold. But, you know, other movies that come out, like, did you hear about this movie that came out? Wow, it's really good. And pe- it is what people talk about for maybe a month and then nobody hears about it ever again. Yeah, I was going to say, see how good my crystal ball works, but I have a feeling that um, A Quiet Place is going to be one of those. It's a fantastic movie, but uh, the yeah, buzz was I like agree. really hard and strong and it's already kind of, I mean... I already stopped reading about it. Right. You know, I think because it doesn't have a lot of cultural significance. I mean, it's not like something like, like get out, which right. has such a cultural significance to it. And it's grown a cultural significance around it too. That's, that's bigger than was probably intended. Right. And that's probably going to have some longevity, but right. But yeah, as I, much as I really enjoyed a quiet place, it probably, well, they are working on a sequel. Yeah, but, I heard that. We'll we'll see. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's gonna be around for a while. We'll see what they do with it. Anyway, we'll. Uh, but there's plenty of films like this, and I I think a lot of these, the ones we're gonna be talking about, were really successful films. Like I was, our first one that we'll be talking about tonight. I was actually reading some reviews from when it came out, and and yeah, it it was pretty well received. Um, for but being, it's not. For it's but it's being made, what it is. Yeah, but it it's was, in the video junkyard now. Yeah, you know exactly, and I and there, I think but there's a lot of reasons why. So. And we'll we'll discuss those in in a bit, but mm-hmm. yeah, I I think um, I the long, again the short answer is stay tuned. We'll see what what the video junkyard becomes, but that's the that was the thought behind getting this thing started. Just just basically recording us shooting the shit about movies, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and much. you know forcing our wives and families to listen to it. Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Hey, just a reminder, all the reviews we do here on the Video Junkyard podcast are full of spoilers. Now, most of the movies that we are reviewing are older than I am, so if you haven't seen them yet, get out there and watch them. But just as a warning, there are spoilers in these reviews. Spoiler alert. Video Junkyard Podcast. 
So let's jump right in. What's our first film? So I wanted to talk a little bit about a movie that I've had kind of a complicated history with, and that is 2004 Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake. I've just been informed that we are going off the air. Look up the road, there's a lot more of them. Why are they coming here? Maybe they're coming for us. Probably going to get some, you know, eye rolls here of, well, you started a cult movie podcast and you're going to talk about Dawn of the Dead, but you're going to talk about the Snyder remake and not the, you know, classic George A. Romero film, especially this shortly after Mr. Romero's passing. But reason is, is because, as you just said, like, this is a movie that came out to a lot of buzz and has mm-hmm. since kind of been relegated into the junkyard, the trash bins. Um, I, I think changing perceptions on the filmmaker himself have kind of influenced uh, oh, yeah. what you know people think about his first few films. Let's remember that Zack Snyder was a superhero at the time, um, Dawn of the Dead, and then and right. he followed it up with I 300, I believe. You, I and, see what you did there. I see what yeah. you did there. <laughs> but yeah. I, no, I think it's true, and I think that's a big reason why um, this movie has... It, there's kind of been a shifting perception of it. The funny thing is, is that my yeah, personal I, you know, experience this... with the movie has been mm-hmm. kind of backwards of that, and that I think I've, I, I didn't really care for it a whole lot at first, and I've come to appreciate it much more uh, upon repeat viewings. But go, go ahead, what were you going to say? How much of your initial dislike, because I remember, I remember us going to see this in 2004 with, with a bunch of friends, uh-huh. and how much of your initial lukewarm response of, to it do you think was because... It wasn't Romero because I mean, let's be honest, Dawn of the Dead, the original George Romero classic is for for sci-fi horror geeks. This is that's like, it's an important film. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a seminal. It's, it's, a, it's a big film. Right. And, and I don't want to steer the conversation. You, you reference a lot. Yes. And I don't want to steer the conversation into that movie that I, we could do an entire episode on that movie because George Romero's Dawn of the Dead from 1978 is a perfect movie. It has everything in it that um, genre nuts love. It's it's. Yeah. In my opinion, that no, no, is a like, perfect film. It is a much, favorite of all time. How film. much of your initial lukewarm response do you think was because of that? It was like, whoa, they're touching something. 100%. Percent. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I think yeah. it, I, it was yeah. it was destined to be. I mean, it was already a favorite film of mine, Don, Romero's Dawn of the Dead. And so so walking into a remake of Dawn of the Dead, I already hated it. I, didn't, I wouldn't have put it into yeah. those words at the time, but that's true. I already was against it. I didn't like the idea that they were remaking it. I still am lukewarm on remakes sometimes, but but I I've learned to give things a chance and to try to see it through the, a modern from a modern perspective or through what a modern film viewer might be thinking. And so so 2004's modern is what I was trying to put myself into when when revisiting this film recently. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think I I didn't care for it. I, I saw it, I've seen it two or three times and, and all at very different points in my life. I was a college student when I saw it the first time. I was a young working adult when I saw it the second time. And, and now I'm a stay at home dad who is, uh, you know, whose only um, outlet for creative outlet right now is, is, is this podcast. So very different points in my life, but I've I've caught it on TV um, here there on some streaming networks and stuff occasionally, and I actually have it on DVD, and I've I've rewatched it 
uh, over the years periodically. And uh, I think my initial response, honestly, I think my initial response to it is pretty much the same as it is today. You know, I, I think I don't think they've changed, which was I, I think this was one of the first remakes where I started appreciating remakes for what they were and not the movie that they're remaking. Um, be, and, and not because I think it is as good. Right. But because I think it was done in a way where it it kind of uh, it showed an appreciation for the original source material. But at the same time, it tried to do its own thing. And and I think it, it pulled that off successfully. Um, yeah, I mean, in it, fact, you know, I think this was Zack Snyder's first film because uh, he started out doing commercials, I believe. And yeah, I, I agree with you that it's totally not the same movie as Romero's, not even they definitely took their own approach to it and did their own thing. I mean, it, everything about it is different. The, the intensity and the way the whole film works, the, it's very fast paced. And I, I would like to say that to give it credit, even the first time I saw it, that it has a really, really strong opening the, the pre-credit uh, portion oh, of the absolutely. film, I always thought was very uh, affecting. I think it's just kind of like the quiet, quiet normalcy of life and like the suburbs and, you know, from coming home from her job and this like regular life kind of juxtaposed yeah. with um, just every it's just world mad. It's one of my favorite. Just <laughs> what I'm trying to say, I guess, is it's one of my favorite like world gone mad depictions and uh, the use of uh, Johnny Cash's song and it, everything's incredible. And then the credits end and everything kind of it, it didn't it didn't maintain that standard for me for the rest of the film. No, I was going to say, unfortunately, it just, um, that that happens with movies sometimes. Sometimes they open strongly and it's just, uh, you can't ever get back to that level. Yeah, I, I agree. There's, there's a couple other times throughout the film where they really try to really shock the audience. Um, you know, the, the, the childbirth baby thing, you know, <laughs> yeah, zombie um, baby. That, that scene was, and I was going to bring that the up. Zombie baby. Yeah. We can talk about that in a separate it, portion as well, but that's that's one of my it's always been one of the beefs that people have with this movie and it's definitely one of my beefs with the movie and not because i'm disgusted the CGI or, zombie baby yeah it's not because i'm disgusted or appalled by it most people seem to be really offended by it and that's not my thing like i actually kind of like the dramatic I'm offended tool with the, way the bad visual effects <laughs> <laughs> yeah um like the dramatic tool and the way that the um character oh mk pfeiffer yeah yeah his his kind of like dealing with you know a impending fatherhood and then having this whole you know world gone mad thrown into his lap works really well i think the character arc and then like right in the middle of that character arc it just loses me like i don't know um his decisions don't make sense to me yeah and then there, it doesn't help that the zombie odd character development it doesn't it doesn't narratively make any sense with everything else that's going on in the world of the film like the way the disease works and everything like there's no way that mm-hmm. the baby should have survived that I don't know anyway they should have left they should have let it die you know stillborn or something and, and <laughs> it just sounds like morbidly awful that I'm rooting for stillbirth like video they should junkyard podcast folks. yeah video junkyard <laughs> podcast <laughs> they but they should have like done well, something along those lines I think our first episode and we're talking about that <laughs> I think they could have uh, I was I was going to a really like I was I was trying to be that they could have come to a really powerful like emotional climax for that character and no they went for CGI zombie baby instead so I mean that that's one of the things yeah. that I pointed out that is not my favorite decision of 
in the movie. I, I think it's that way with a lot of the characters in it, though. I mean, one yeah. of the things that made the original Dawn of the Dead so so good was actually the small the small cast. You know, you've got you've got four people in a shopping mall, and mm-hmm. there were a lot more in this remake. You've got, I mean, about ten, I think, or something like that, between the yeah, couple of security guards and. There's all these different people, and it, it definitely turns it into a bigger film, and it does complicate the story. That being said, one of the things I've always found really interesting, just in, in I mean, it's now 2018, so this is a 14-year-old film, yeah. is that your your three lead actors and actresses, Sarah Polly, Ving Rhames, and Jake Weber. I mean, Ving Rhames was a big name before this movie, and he's still... He's still acting. He's in the new Mission Impossible film, but he, he hasn't done as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, M.K. Pfeiffer was a, was a rising star uh, yeah. around this time. He hasn't been in too much. But then these these two other actors, which were totally like B characters, you know, Ty Burrell's character <laughs> and, and Michael Kelly. Now they've gone on to do a lot. I mean, Ty Burrell on Modern Family. Right. And, you know, he was in the, the Sherman Peabody movie as the voice. Michael Kelly's been on House of Cards. He's been in other Zack Snyder vehicles like Man of Steel. But there, it, it's kind of funny. It's like, this is a, a really good example of, you know, before we knew you kind of, of actors. And they've really gone on to do some, some pretty good things. Um, you know, it's it's just kind of interesting how that can work out sometime. Snyder's never been, you know, this was, you know, before Snyder was was trying to cast, you know, every, all these huge names and stuff in Hollywood in movies. So this was really for his first film. It feels more intimate than other Zack Snyder films. Yeah. I, in my opinion. There's a lot of things done well in this movie. And I think it has a lot more in common with a movie like 28 Days Later than it does with Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the, the only thing Dawn of the Dead about this movie at all is the shopping mall. And they use that as, as right. a way to relate it back to Romero's movie. It's honestly an, an in-name only remake in the fact that it takes place in a shopping mall. There are no real... The characters, even though there's kind of like a male lead and a female lead, and they, they don't really have much in common with the characters from the Romero film. Um, so it, it is really mm-hmm. easy once you get over it. Like, it's really easy to look at it as its own movie. So just something that, you know, 22-year-old me or whatever I would have been in 2004 didn't take into account. To It just, I was referring everything back to, well, it's different, you know, it's, um, but yeah, it's it's definitely more of a 28 Days Later. They, there's not a real emphasis on cannibalism mm-hmm. in the movie. Like, they, the, the zombies bite, but we don't see a right. whole lot of, like, consuming right. of flesh in the movie. Um, there is a lot of consuming of flesh in, <laughs> um, because... He was, I mean, George Romero's film is full of symbolism. It takes place in a shopping mall because that right. meant something to him as a as a writer. You know, consumerism and 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 honestly, the I think the thing, even back to the original Night of the Living Dead, definitely zombies ate people because it was. It, I think he was always talking about consumerism, the way that people consume. Um, but certainly, the shopping mall <laughs> was. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, well, you know, the, the reanimated corpses are are attracted to this place because it's a place where they would consume. I mean, again, Romero. I mean, one of the interesting parallels here between Zack Snyder and George Romero is that they both started out with commercials, yeah, yep. and and in advertising. And I think you see that stylistically, very and and well, thematically and stylistically with Romero's work, especially in the his original Dawn of the Dead, the 
helicopter scene where they're flying over the the midwestern or not midwestern but like you know rural pennsylvania and you see you know it's essentially a beer commercial um there's is zach snyder you can tell he came from advertising with his films but it's done in a very different way it's more stylistically rather than thematically but you can in in just the way that he he paces a scene the way that Zack Snyder paces a scene. I, I'll give credit where credit's due. And no, he's not my favorite director, but uh, I'll give credit where it's due that, that you can, he definitely has a style and it's interesting that it comes from advertising. Now I'm not always pleased with how he uses it, but I do think it's there. Yeah, I, I agree. Like I said, there's good things about this movie. There's a lot of really fun movie or horror movie homages and Easter eggs in it that I did not catch before. Like, um, and in one of them, you're going to have to have seen the unrated director's cut of the movie because I think it was cut out of the theatrical. But in the beginning sequence, when Sarah mm. Polly's uh, boyfriend or husband chases her into the bathroom, there's like a shot for shot um, shining homage with him sticking his face through the door oh, yeah. and her crawling out of the bathroom window. Um, go through and list them if you're if you're a horror movie fan and you want to check out dawn of the dead uh 2004 again there is literally in the first 20 minutes of this movie i think i counted like four or five like homage type sequences so it's definitely he's definitely coming from a place of being a fan of horror films and the original film because there are a lot of tips of the hat to those things um the movie's intensity isn't is incredible like it's pretty much at a 10 the whole way through i'm not sure they do enough to maintain your interest all the way through the movie. It runs about 95 minutes, I think. But it, it does, it, it, especially in the first half of the film, it's, it, the scares are good and the intensity is at 10 pretty much the whole way. There's a lot more style than substance in this movie. It's definitely a modern movie mm-hmm. when compared to Romero's right. um, film. Uh, the gore and the makeup effects are, are pretty top-notch. Like, everything looks great. It's... Um, do you know who did? Who was one of the the makeup effects on this? Makeup effects artist on this. I I was totally blown away by this one. I I just recently learned this. Oh no, not Heather Lagenkamp. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, Heather Lagenkamp. No, she did. Was one of the effects. I I read that and I'll, I'll be. I had to Google it, mm-hmm. but confirmed. Yeah, she she does quite a lot of. Uh, practical effects, makeup effects, and she she was on the set from the. So those of you that are not in the know, Heather Lagenkamp was the original, you know, Nancy from the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes, and re- reprised um, the role in both Nightmare on Elm Street Three, The Dream Warriors, and also yeah. in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yeah, in a in a meta way, but yes, yes, <laughs> actually playing um, herself. Yeah, so in she so playing herself playing that. Yeah. But she, uh, yeah, she was one of the the effects people, and even from the, for the production standpoint too. Um, James Gunn, now director of, of the successful Guardians of the Galaxy films, yep. and, and also one of my favorites, Slither, um, yes. who's a Troma alum. This was one of his first writing gigs. I don't think he finished the project, but I know he was a, a, on one of the early drafts of of uh, this remake of Dawn of the Dead. And even, of course, I don't think we can talk about this movie without bringing up Sprinting Zombies. Because I think this was like their big origin. Oh, yeah. Fast zombies. You know, the fast-moving zombies. I can't and believe we even skipped... love it or hate it thing. Yeah. I was going to say, I can't believe we skipped over yeah, that. But yeah, that was definitely a big a big thing about this movie. I think it kind of introduced... Although it didn't, because 28 Days Later is prior was released prior to this film. But 
Yeah, but it, yeah, that's true. Um, that is true. Though technically these are true zombies, but I see the point. Yeah, um, I mean, they're it, as true as zombies as the rage zombies. And... Yeah, but what's always fascinated me though about the the fast moving thing is how it really changes the dynamic. I mean, with with Romero's slow zombies, the plotting zombies, even when a character is killed off because they're they're eaten by the Walking Dead, the original Walking Dead. Um, you know, it, it was this slow oncoming thing and it built up dread and it was symbolic of being consumed over a slow period, you know. And in this one, it's much more, like you said, it's much more of a modern film. I don't think, and I don't want to sound like the old man shaking his fist, but it, it I don't think that's something a modern, a lot of modern younger audiences want to see is that slow pull. Just because we're so exposed to everything being so much faster now, we want our horror faster, you know. Right. Uh, one could make that argument. Yeah. It serves a purpose, though. It yeah. does make it interesting. It, it It's not just the same zombie movie then because, like, oh, these ones for some reason can move really, really fast. And it really changes the dynamic of how things happen in the film. It does. It, 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 I mentioned the intensity, and and that's definitely part of it, is that you know, these mm-hmm. zombies can not only run or move quickly or jump, but they can, they seem to be able to run, jump and like sprint at almost inhuman speeds. So yeah, I mean, that definitely cranks up the intensity. It gives it an action movie feel. It, yeah, it definitely, well, this is the, I think none of the, the original dead trilogy, the closest one that would have an action movie feel to it would be day. And even that was pretty, pretty mild. Yeah, I mean, Dawn of the Dead definitely has its moments, like the, uh, you know, getting the, tr- oh, the truck scenes and the bikers. And yeah, I mean, it, it definitely has its moments. But this is definitely, this was definitely formulated from even from a script standpoint as being like, this is going to be more of an action movie than that. And that's just what was going on in cinema at the time. And I think that's not a whole lot different than what we're seeing now is this big budget action, sci-fi, action horror. I mean, everything's got to have that like action element to it because of the... Um, prevalence of big special effects and you know whatever so yeah. anyway to kind of draw this to a close on this movie joe i'll let you go first but what is your final verdict on dawn of the dead 2004 i still give it a b i think i gave it a b then and i still give it one now um it's not it's not dawn of the dead the way that you know it was originally envisioned i, I think even george romero actually um he said it was better than he expected and he really praised the first 15, 20 minutes. And I, I would really agree with that. I don't think there's much I would disagree with George Romero on when it comes to his <laughs> movies, but no, I, um, you know, I, I do agree with you. The opening of this is something we hadn't seen before. And it's, I think it's something that Romero always wanted to show. So there was, there was definitely an homage there, but yeah, it, it it's a lot of style, not as much substance, it has more in common, I think, with your traditional zombie movie than it does have anything of the the societal commentary that George Romero originally had. So you're to B on that one. I think I would come in more be, on, yeah. more on a C plus, maybe if we're doing pluses. I we never really discussed what our rating system was. If we're going to use letter grades, then yeah, I would definitely go with a C plus on this one. It is definitely a flawed mm. movie, but there is more good in this movie than there is bad. Um, I will forgive them for Zombie Baby. It's it's definitely watchable, this, and it's uh, yeah, I, especially even for the first twenty minutes of then just the intensity of the movie is is it's never boring.
the soundtrack alone makes up for zombie baby <laughs> yes it's got a great soundtrack it's got a phenomenal soundtrack um i mean it's uh best use of richard cheese i think i've ever heard but no, <laughs> you know it's, it's i actually really think the richard cheese felt out of, out of place in that movie i wasn't a huge fan of that as a really yeah, um, I just felt like it took you kind of out of the... Everything's so intense in that movie. And I know what they were trying to do. It was the exact same thing. Romero's film has some lighthearted, uh, comedy-esque uh, sequences and with lighthearted music in it. And I think they were trying to emulate that. But um, yep. That's what all I'm the rest of the music was used so well. And that was just such... Um, it felt out of place in this film. This film was very dark and very intense, except for like two odd minutes that all of a sudden they wanted to be goofy and it just felt out of place to me. But. Uh, overall, I think though that, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth checking out if you haven't seen it. Um, of course, uh, if you really want to have the full experience, I still recommend watching Romero's original Dawn of the Dead. I'll always plug that no matter what. Oh yeah. Um, but but I yeah, mean, I do think it's, it's, it's a great, it's a good example of a remake that, tips its hat to the source material, but at the same time is going to do its own thing, which, which I think is, is great. And I think if you're going to have a remake, that's what you want. You want it to appreciate the source material, but at the same time, you don't want to watch the same movie all over again. I mean, we've seen a, an example of a remake and anybody who ever complains about remakes, I want you to remember the Gus Van Zant remake of Psycho. <laughs> yes. Where it was almost shot for shot and word for word. And it was, a completely pointless film. Obviously, yeah, they I'm just made the exact same but movie, just with shitty acting and shitty direction. And they added, like, <laughs> they only added like one or two scenes that were really, really awkward, and which and were from it, the screenplay, just as unnecessary. Know, guess what? There's a reason things get cut out. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it, it was a it was a pointless film. So I mean, when people are like I don't like remakes, fair enough. Not remakes aren't always very good, and sometimes in many cases, and I think this is one of them where they did kind of you can't remake this and maybe it's the lightning number striking twice in the same spot idea that I don't know if you can make remake Dawn of the dead and maintain what really made it special because that was so unique to a certain time. Right. Uh, and you but if you're going mean, to remake it, at least appreciate it and do your own thing with it. If you're going to remake a movie, you have to remake a movie for modern audiences. Movies are a business. You have to sell tickets. That's the main thing is get butts and seats. So you don't make a movie for an a, you don't make a movie in 2004 for a 1978 audience. It's not going to work. So, yeah, I think they did. They actually did a fairly good job here. This is a decent remake. It has, like, almost none of the wonderful substance and, like, the multi, all the layers. And, like, like I said, Romero's film is basically a perfect film, uh, in my opinion. But it doesn't mm -hmm. make this movie bad just because it's not Dawn of the Dead 1978. It's a very different vehicle. It's its own thing. So, yeah, I, I, I give it a C+. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I would recommend and it anyone, anyway, especially thing, if you find it for thing, three bucks or somewhere. Yeah. I mean, hell, pick it up. It's good, it's good enough. It's a good watch. Yeah, it was back before everybody hated Zack Snyder. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, definitely worth adding to the collection. If, if you're into zombie films, if you're into good remakes, a quality remake. I'll call it a quality remake. Uh, yes. Definitely add it to your collection. Video Junkyard Podcast. So one of the things that we want to do with Video uh, Junkyard as well is kind of look at some forgotten franchises. Obviously, when you go to the cinemas nowadays, everything, uh, these gigantic sprawling franchises, you know, the, the Marvel films have pretty much done the biggest example of a franchise you could do, I would say, since Toho. Yes. Um, just 
with big films with lots of characters that are interacting. And we're, we're used to, you know, of course, there's the famous horror franchises of, of the 80s, like the Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th and Halloween and so on. But every now and then you just get these little two-parter franchises and they slip through the cracks. And these are the kind of movies where at least the first one uh, was a, a fairly successful film when it first came out. And then it was something that uh, maybe people forgot about because by the time the sequel came out, it was a direct-to-video release. And we are talking about uh, the 1988 film Waxwork. It's 11.45. Let's go. Imagine, if you will, an exhibit in fear. It looks a little spooky, boys. You think we should do this? A place that appeals to your deepest and darkest fantasies. Ooh, scary. Your fascination with ghosts, monsters, and the many unearthly elements of the supernatural. Welcome to the Let's Look. And this is killer. Enjoy. Wow, the glasses from Nutty Zombies from Hell. Lose yourself in it. Do you like a closer look? Really? But whatever you do, don't step over the rope. Vestron Pictures welcomes you into a new dimension in terror. Waxwork. And, and one of the things I'd also like to bring up as, as necessary here is the original video cassette cover art for this. Yes. It was so striking. It was so striking. Um, of, of, of the little butler and opening this door with these bizarre, melty, creepy wax faces floating in, in this kind of ether was was really great. So, uh, directed by Anthony Hickox, a British director who's also known for things like Hellraiser 3 and Warlock Armageddon. I'm really selling him here, aren't I? <laughs> um, but uh, Waxwork, let's see, so stars Zach Galligan, um, known from Gremlins. And only. And Gremlins. Deborah Foreman, who was the star of Valley Girl. Yes. Which I didn't realize when I first saw it. Um, Zach Galligan, yeah, he's pretty much, yeah, if, if you've ever seen Gremlins, it's Billy. So yeah. Billy from Gremlins. And honestly, I only knew so Zach. Did you, did you, has, any, has Zach Galligan done a whole lot of other things besides, I I mean, a few things recently, actually. He's kind of come back out of the woodwork. Like, yeah. You know, people that grew up watching these films and, and really appreciated his performances in these movies. Um, but yeah, other than Waxwork and Gremlins, the two Gremlins movies, I... I don't remember seeing him in anything until until just you know. I, I saw him. Ago. I saw him in a movie with um, Rob. Uh, no, what was her name? Um, Molly Ringwald. It was a, a made-for-TV movie. It was called Surviving a Family in Crisis. You ever see that one? No, I didn't. It's holy shit! It's <laughs> uh, it's like it's it's seriously it's it's literally Romeo and Juliet set in the 1980s. And it's just it's it it's like an hour and a half of really sad parents. <laughs> it's a really uncomfortable movie. It's really bad. It's scarier than any other thing he's been in. <laughs> and and especially too because it's got like River Phoenix and Heather O'Rourke from Poltergeist mm -hmm. as like the the little kid siblings. And yeah, it's just it's the whole the whole package. Especially looking back at that movie now, it's creepy as shit. Yeah, it's just. Ugh. Yeah, so skip that one. But Waxwork's yeah. good. Yeah, Waxwork's fantastic. I mean, not to spoil what my so, reviews do. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, well, so, so you know, the basic 
premise here is you've got these uh, these 1980s, late 1980s high school. Are they high school or are they college? It's never really I could not really clear. figure it out. It seemed like college, but then there were some references, I think, that they were called high school students by other characters in the movie. So I have no idea. Yeah. They had like the I, um, like Nazi-esque <laughs> professor or whatever i did very much look like professor or teacher but, and they referred to them as, in, as whether, whether so they definitely were college students right even if there was a line about them being in high school they're wrong i'm gonna just say it right there because um i they referred to them as fraternity boys at one point didn't they yeah maybe i mean well they they're they're hanging out at a house but we're, we're talking about real waspy kids too so you oh, know yeah. you never can tell if they're staying in college housing or if their parents are just that typical of the 1980s where they just didn't give a shit um which is like the standard in every 80s horror film you yeah, have to have the parents there's never parents, 80s, there's never parents around the parents don't exist they're they're, they're non-existent yep. yeah um but but you know he so zach galligan's character is, is this very you know very waspy very rich he's got a butler that the cigarettes <laughs> yes is, is still really amusing to me um i don't know what like okay so the whole movie is just the fantastic like it's funny because anthony hickox never really makes a great movie like this again i haven't seen a lot of his later work but like i've seen hellraiser 3 and i've seen a couple of the, these two movies and i don't think he ever like locked on as as well as in this movie because this is just about perfect example and i'm glad you brought this one up because this is about a perfect example of what belongs on this podcast it is probably the best i don't know if i want to call it a b movie it did come out in like a big um big way but it definitely was more successful on video it was one of the first generation like video store movies i think um in that first generation i should say i don't know it just it, it it's a perfect example it's a great parody uh slash kind of tribute to like bunch of different eras of horror movies everywhere from classic to hammer i mean they go kind of go through everything and they they're pretty spot on loving homages to those mm -hmm. the sequel gets a little less yeah. more a little more parody and a little less tribute but in the first movie it's really done well it's spot on but it's all with the nice you know firm tongue in the cheek and it's it's definitely got a a comedy edge to it as well it's a very funny movie as well right and of course so the basic premise for people that aren't aren't familiar with it is you've got these these ambiguous high school college students and they go to a waxwork showing or a wax museum uh late one night which is kind of mysteriously popped up in town and there are i think about 18 exhibits in the wax museum and there's this something supernatural type of, of vibe that's attracting each one of them to cross the red rope barriers outside and when they cross those barriers you know the, the, the little guard ropes outside of the wax exhibits they are then sucked into the scene so it's actually almost an anthology film in a way where you've got mm -hmm. all these little mini movies going on and they're usually pretty short but they're all quite impressive yeah I mean, I think they they're they're also spot on. It's a little more Hammer horror than it is Universal horror. Yeah. It's definitely. I mean, the 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 influence of both of those things are there. I mean, man, hats off to not only Anthony Hickox but I, who is the screenwriter? I'm sure I have it here in front of me somewhere. Uh, maybe he was. He did. Yeah, he wrote and directed the film. Hats off to him for this one because it just really is probably one of the better examples of a, a like a tribute style anthology movie that kind of like 
has a little bit of everything in every era of horror. I mean, even to the down to what you were talking about, the waspish teenagers with their constant smoking cigarettes, I think comes like kind of straight out of the 50s mm-hmm. movies as well. Even their I, dialogue I, is, is very, very 50s. Yep. Yeah. And their the relationships and everything. painful. And kind of the cars they drive. And it's just, it's a, it's a very, it's a movie that owes a huge debt to, you know, the history of horror. And it's all on display there. I think well, anyone looking too, for a serious very... horror film may want to kind of, you know, steer their expectations in the right direction. But this is this is definitely more in the line of a comedy, but it is done with a very loving touch to the influence of, like, all the horror films that have come before. Well, and I'd like to point out, too, that it's it's really cool to see a supernatural wax museum movie that doesn't just rehash Vincent Price's House of Wax. Yes. You know, this yeah, has good just... humor in it. The, the visual and practical effects in it for 1988 are really, really They're good. Incredibly good. Um, and a cool shout out. It was awesome, but very brief performance by John Rice Davies. It's got a really good yes. cast. Yeah, it sure does. I mean, John Rice Davies, uh, David Warner, Patrick McNee, who are both, you know, <laughs> fantastic classical British actors. Uh, David Warner is fantastic in everything, and he's the villain in this film, um, which he just. I mean, that David Warner was born to play. Um, you know, scenery chewing villains like this guy. I don't remember what the character's name is. Again, I, uh, I just watched this the other day. I definitely yeah, he's should, like the host. But, yeah, he's um, the host and the the owner of the wax museum. Yeah. Um, and it's cool too if if you watch like the the big climax in it too, and you get to see like all of the different creatures. You know, they're they're eighteen most evil beings that are featured in the wax work. You've got the Marquis de Sade, a werewolf. There's uh, Count Dracula in in his segment. You do see his brides and his son. You see a golem, um, Phantom of the Opera. I see. I, I noticed the mummy. Obviously, there's yep. zombies and there are Romero style zombies. Yes. Um, Frankenstein's monster, Jack the Ripper, Invisible Man, a voodoo priest, a witch, the Snake Man, uh, pods from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Rosemary's Baby, or kind of the baby from It's Alive, one of the two. Yeah. Um, evil Baby. Which, and yeah. Yeah, an, an axe murder. <laughs> There's a theme here tonight with Evil Baby. Yeah, I guess. It was a multi-dot alien. I, and then the last two I noticed was uh, the like a, an Audrey two from Little Shop of Horrors. And Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So, I yes. mean, it's, it's got a full cast of monsters. If it wasn't an uh, at least a partial inspiration, it has been blatantly ripped off when you look at, which is a great film too, Cabin in the Woods. Yes. Yeah, and I think they were going for something. Again, we're going to talk about, like, you know, films of the period. But Cabin in the Woods is definitely similar in a lot of ways. And there's just a more modern take on this. So, with that in mind, I was going to say something about the ending is that I just absolutely love that the ending of this film actually comes down to a angry mob of villagers with pitchforks and torches invading the <laughs> wax museum to stop the evil and uh yes in in 1988 this was the uh end of the movie it's yeah, so, it's yeah seriously it's just climax. It's, it's a Fantastic. fun yeah and then it's kind of like a battle royale with between monsters and and yeah these villagers uh, villagers at night 
I'm just using that term as the archetype. So let me ask you a question about like a secret society of old people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But they definitely come in with the pitchforks and torches. So, right. (laughs) So let me ask you a question about waxworks. Do you think they cover about waxwork? I think they cover all their bases when it comes to horror films. Do they leave anything out? Um, I mean, there's, oh, I, there's always stuff they could have left out, you know, like as far as I'm concerned, there was no kaiju, but you know, I'm not going to blame them for that. I, I think, you know, when you go into the sequel, they, they cover a lot more. Right. Um, okay. So they, yeah, they maybe that's a question we should leave for <laughs> after we talk about Waxwork 2 as well. And also, but, you know, um, like, have you ever actually been to a wax museum before? I have, I have, um, and there used to be one in the Wisconsin Dells that I remember going to when I was a kid once, um, for on a family vacation. I guess it closed down in the '90s, uh, and and the wax figures were sent. You know, some were purchased and some were on eBay, and some went to a museum in Canada or something. You know, there's a few store, of course, you know, not so the famous wax museums, but. This was, I think, just called like Stars of Wax or something like that, or it was something weird. But it was, you know, your typical Marilyn Monroe, and here's a Dolly Parton, and here's the cast of Star Trek and Wizard of Oz. None of them look really that authentic or look really like the people they're supposed to look like. But they, I don't know, wax museums are always kind of weird. Wax figures are always kind of weird looking. I've, and I've never actually been to one. It's like so the same I... reason why we don't like, it's the same reason I think why we don't like, you know, like some of the, the robots that are created that, you know, they put like rubber skin over it to make it look like a person. We, we have this tendency to not like that because it's like, ah, oh, you look like a person, but you don't. I yeah. think wax figures are kind of the same thing. They just give you the, the creeps uh, naturally, which is kind of cool. It's very effective. Yeah. Because I think when this came out, wax museums were still around. There were these oddity things that you'd see in places like the Wisconsin Dells or, you know, Hannibal, Missouri or Branson or something, you know, right. where or, or Vegas. You'd see them and they are kind of off putting. So it, I think the idea of just going to a wax museum is off putting to begin with. Yes. So this movie was effective before it was even made. <laughs> right. And I think that was the you know way to bring it in. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the wax museum except as a vehicle to get you, get the you know, characters or victims into the scenarios where then they can make a mini werewolf movie or they can make a mini Dracula film or they can make, you know, their mini um, mummy film and and so on and so forth. Let me ask you about Waxwork 2. So it's a few years later, 1992. So we're talking four years later and it's straight to video. Yeah. And they got Zach Galligan back. And and I think Anthony Hickox directed this one, too. He did. Wrote and directed. Uh, yep. They had to recast the, the female lead. They had to recast that female lead. The character of Sarah uh, went to Monica Schnair, um, who's a TV actress and a supermodel. Um, so she took that role. It, it was an interesting continuation of the first film. And, and it is, it's one of those cool sequels where it does pick up pretty much right after the first movie. Yeah. I mean, it does um, the, the old repeats the last scene. Um, with you mm-hmm. know a little bit differences like putting the new actress into a little bit of it, but yeah, it picks up right where Waxwork left off. Yeah, it's got a very it's got a very Back to the Future, Back to the Future Two vibe to that. Yes, um, and, and it's it's a good story too. It's not rehashing the first movie, you know, for it being a direct to video sequel. It it actually is a good continuation. It's not just rehashing the original movie. It's it's tying in and it takes the whole story in a new direction that is exciting and it, it it's very enjoyable it's definitely uh a lot more has a lot more humor 
and a lot more very blatant cameos. Yeah. So, um, but there's some great references to like Alien and the Evil Dead and the Haunting. So, you know, it, it, you know, the original first movie, it really kind of focused on somewhat classic or new classic monsters. And I feel like Waxwork 2 really focused on the what we call the classic monsters, more of the 80s, you yes. know, with Alien and Evil Dead. Yeah, I think Waxwork 2 has a lot of the same charms. Like, it's definitely, perhaps it, it might be a bit more of a comedy than the original Waxwork. And as I said, I think I pointed out earlier, it definitely functions a little bit more as parody than homage, I think, in this film. Yeah. The first film, the lines are a little more blurred. There's certainly parody in, in the first film as well, but... Uh, here it's def it's 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 blatant like it's it's a scene straight out of a movie and they're gonna do you know a parody of that scene especially the alien stuff or the haunting stuff I mean those are literally scenes from the the films that are right. acted out with their their characters I found that this one the actual plot and 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 you could argue this is the case with the first one too but the actual plot of the film or how it's connected to the first film was pretty thin. It was just enough there so that they could make a bunch of little mini-movies again, which I'm not necessarily complaining about that because they are done well and it is funny, but it doesn't it doesn't really have as much of its own story as Waxwork does. And you, I, I suppose the argument could be made that Waxwork doesn't have a whole lot of it to start with. This, to me, felt a little bit more like, in, in, uh, if you remember the... John Ritter movie from the early 90s, Stay Tuned with the TV, the parents that get zapped into the TV, and they kind of jump around oh, from sure. one little yeah. parody sequence to another. This movie reminded me some a little more of a Stay Tuned type film than the first one that was all very much tied into it being the Wax Museum, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what this one did is explain what's going on with those Wax figure exhibits. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it that's where you get these these time and dimension portals. They're like little tiny tortoises, um, you know, that, that, that transport you to these kind of, or it's almost like that show Sliders or it's Quantum Leap or like a lot of other things very similar to it in the early 90s and late 80s. You know, you were you were jumping from one world or, or dimension to another or a place in time or space. I, I thought it was, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty thin tie-in. Yeah. But it was one where I, I think the original plot was thin enough too of the first movie where it's, kids go to wax museum and as much as I think it's really clever because it hadn't been done a lot before you enter into the exhibit and you're now part of it. This just kind of said, well, let's explain how that works and it'll take the whole, our own movie in, on, in its whole new direction. So yeah, I mean, it very well could have been a separate film that had nothing to do with wax work, but if, if it were, I could see somebody making the same thread to connect it anyway, going, Oh, that's how wax work works. <laughs> Yeah, I, I generally liked it quite a bit, but the I also found like the, the middle section of the movie that takes place in medieval England was a little bit, I don't know, plotted along a little bit and was that maybe dragged. not as much fun as the rest of the film. The rest of the film is like, you know, definitely along the lines of, of comedy. And all of a sudden there's this like stuck in the middle, this kind of like longer bit taking place in medieval England. So outside of kind of the horror element of it, that all of a sudden is going to be very serious and plot heavy. It's funny for me to say the words plot heavy after I just accused it of not having a plot, but that's where they're going to dump all the plot on you. And then they're going to resolve right. that real quickly. And then, so it did have some, some issues in the middle, but then again, I knew how do you make a sequel to wax work? I mean, <laughs> I try to put myself in the writer's shoes. So it's 
overall, I think they, they were successful. They did a good job with it. It's an enjoyable movie, especially from the straight-to-video market. Its quality is nearly as good as the first one when it comes to special effects and big yeah, oh, star cameos yeah. and such. Bruce Campbell's presence and the Frankenstein oh, head smash iPod yeah. um, effect is definitely an all-time classic, and you should watch the movie just for that. Um, but it's, it's just as classic as the first movie's werewolf tear-in-half uh, effect. Yes. Well, and one thing I'd like to point out, too, just from a, from a distribution perspective, was the first movie, the first Waxwork, was released by Vestron Pictures. I don't know. Whoever bought them out later must have distributed Waxwork, too. And Vestron, I mean, they have these awesome classics that will probably be showing up on the podcast at some point or another, like Class of 1999, Little Monsters with Howie Mandel and Fred Savage, Earth Girls Are Easy, Lair of the White Worm, Slaughter High, Blood Diner. All these are like the kind of movies that we're going to be talking about on here. So you'll be hearing about Vestron Pictures probably a lot more. However, Vestron also, they were known for some big budget movies and classics too, like Dirty Dancing was distributed by Vestron. Yep. Um, Princess Bride, Young Guns, Blue Steel, things like that. I mean, they went bankrupt in the early, I think it was like 1990 that they went bankrupt. Um, but MGM got some of their, their properties and stuff. But ultimately, yeah, Lionsgate, I think, owns the library now. They do, yeah. So and they've released a wanna, collection, wanna, by the way, of a, like all, a lot of really of great Vestron movies that are in this vein. So, like you said, the yeah. Blood Diner, um, the Unholy. So, yeah, I think you definitely, if if you're interested in picking up Waxwork, Waxwork Two, I re- totally recommend it. Um, and in fact, I think you can get them on a, a, a two movie set that Lionsgate uh, sells. There is, there's a two movie Blu-ray, I believe, that is relatively inexpensive and is definitely worth the, worth the money waxwork is perhaps and i'm always gonna this is why i don't do i don't i don't ever save my i always can't stand when people are like hey what's your favorite movie what's your favorite song what's your favorite this because it's always in flux but at this right. moment i'm going to say this is perhaps waxwork the original perhaps my favorite film of this era especially from the best collection it just has everything it's just perfect it's funny special effects are great it's a tribute to all the old monster movies that i adore so it just it really speaks to me on a lot of levels it's a great movie uh i can't recommend it high enough i would give in my estimation that's a solid a movie it's a it's definitely one of those that you just gotta see uh, yeah the sequel i I i'd put it up there too yeah i i would say it's definitely a solid it's it's a bb plus movie it's Almost as good as the first one. It just suffers from being a sequel, and you really can't hold that against it because, well, it's a sequel. So, <laughs> and it's a pretty good one for that too. I mean, it's a pretty good sequel. There's been plenty of worse ones. Um, yeah, I would, I would give it. I would give Waxwork. Uh, you know, I'd do about the same. For, given its context, I think that's the important thing too. Like back in 1988, no, I would not have given it an A. I would have really enjoyed it. But I think looking at it by today, looking back, and for, if you like cult movies kind of from the late 80s early 90s it's 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 a must-have it's a great movie waxwork is, a, is one of those films where i think i'm always in the mood to watch it yes that you know? is one you can put there's, on there's some anytime and i can I am... put on anytime <laughs> and enjoy it even with the bad dialogue and, and there's, there's some really bad banter in it that's so bad it's good Yes, um, and and I feel like all of it's, it's very very, very self aware. Like from a screenwriting standpoint, I mean they were they they knew what they were making. Like this was a this was the whole movie is a is a tribute to you know 
horror films that have come before. So I even think some of the stilted dialogue and stuff. I feel like the, the, the modern day in that is definitely not really modern day 1988. It's definitely based on 50s um, monster movie mm-hmm. casts and kind of the disposable teens of maybe of other 80s movies. They might have been, you, could, you could draw that. But it's just, it's so not 80s, even though the... Th- the costume design and such is, but uh. it's got some it's got some good eighties tropes in it. I mean, oh yeah, yeah. I think it's one of those things with um, with, with a film like this that it's it's something that I think I was originally attracted to it at the local video store because of the cover art. Yes, and you know back then it was such a crapshoot because you only had a couple bucks to rent a movie and you you spent hours in the video store picking the right one or maybe i was just an obsessive little kid <laughs> and this was one where you know i was like got at home and watched it and i was very 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 pleased with it i was i really enjoyed it uh and it's it's become one of my kind of favorites if somebody you know was like yeah, i'm looking for a really good movie to watch and i want it to be kind of 80s kind of schlock you're like oh you gotta watch wax work yeah i mean the only way you're not gonna like this movie is if you try to take it seriously so you know sit down, kick your feet up, have a laugh. It's fantastic. It's fun. It's everything a good, like, be schlocky horror movie should be. It's perfect in a lot of ways. It's it, it's imperfect in a lot of ways, too, I guess. But it's, 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 I can't, I really can't recommend it high enough. If you've not seen Waxwork, see Waxwork. And if you've not seen Waxwork 2, just buy the DVD with both of them on it, because it's definitely worth a watch. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a charming little film. You should definitely check it out. And now it's time for the Geek Dads. Well, okay. So let me have you real quickly introduce what we're what we're talking about when when we say Geek Dads. Okay. Yeah, so so we are, you know, self-proclaimed geeks on this stuff, and both of us have kids. Now, Eric has twins that are very, very young. Yes. How, how old specifically? They are 17 months, so, yes. 17 months. Creeping up on and I have a, a three-and-a-half-year-old. Yeah. I have a three-and-a-half-year-old and an and a eight-year-old. And the eight-year-old, our daughter, um, she is starting to get interested in horror films so i'm in a really exciting place right now where i get to test out what is appropriate what she can handle and what will put her in therapy (laughs) so and and my son you know oliver just destroys things so he he there have been things that he's seen where he's like you know covers his eyes we're like okay that's too much too much but with lisa it's this very delicate thing like she really likes vampires, but she doesn't like when you say the word blood. So <laughs> that makes that really difficult. Um, so, like, I don't know. like so. And, and your kids, you know, too, too young for this. But I, we thought it'd be kind of a fun thing to include periodically, not in every single episode necessarily. But, you know, how do you, how, how do you figure out what of these kind of genre and genre films, especially in cult films, which ones are appropriate to show your kids and which ones aren't, you know, and we can say right off the bat, most of the trauma films, just no, just no. <laughs> yes. But I'm going to say a large majority like of what we're going to talk about here is probably no, but I mean, not a I think a case could be made for, you know, 
I was gonna say like waxwork. Yeah, I mean she might like it. There's not a lot of, you know, there, there's not a, there's a ton of violence because it's a horror film. You know, you see a guy get ripped in half. Yes, and you know, and that that would be my me, only that thing. That was it's... my first introduction. It was my first introduction to steak tartare. <laughs> yeah, which every time somebody says it now, I, I imagine the the guy playing Dracula just doing that weird steak tartare <laughs> thing. Yeah, you gotta see the it's... movie and you'll find that fun. Yeah, I think yeah, older kids might be able to handle this. The only thing is, there is a, a significant amount of kind of jarringly gory special effects. And I, when I say jarringly, I mean from the perspective of a child, I think it would be because you just don't see that kind of thing. They're all very cartoonish. It's all played for laughs and for yeah. fun. It's it's not anything that's going to, like, it, there's not a very strong sense of peril in any of the moments. It's, it's definitely all played for laughs. But it is very, there are moments in the film that are very gory, very bloody, very, um, lots of viscera. And, yeah, man, getting ripped totally in half mm-hmm. by a werewolf, which is one of the finest moments of cinema history, but yeah, it's up there. <laughs> so it's up. There. I don't know. It, it's one of my, one of my rosebuds. Yes. Yeah. That one's up there. I think, for, but you know, like I showed Lisa creep show and she handled that without yeah. any problem. Yeah. And I, creep show too. She saw creep show too as well. But then we put yeah, on demon night are... and she, she was like, no, can't do this. Yeah. I wonder what the distinction so is. Strange. I wonder if, 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 and I'm trying to put myself, you know, think of when I was a kid, like if things that are modern or look current to you, to you, that take place in a world you understand are more scary than things that look antiquated or dated in some way. Um, and it could just be that, you know, the, the style of the movie, uh, creep show, both of them are very, you know, intentionally cartoonish. I mean, they're, they're meant to look and function like yeah. comic books. So like the EC comics, um, Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe that just works on a really like deeper level than you think it does, and it 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 plays like a cartoon, and maybe she's picking up on that aspect of those the the creep show films. Yeah, and, and, I and I think like she Demon might handle. Night, although is is I would argue is still very in the realm of being kind of cartoonish, and it's it's very. And, and follow me on this. Well, I, effects I, came a long way in between. Effects came a long way in between those two films. Demon Knight, uh, which is a Tales from the Crypt film as well, took or it came out in a time when horror movies were all kind of very MTV in style. Does that make sense to you? Is that is that a description that that works? Yeah, I think but that, like, that's a good one. Yeah, and I don't even necessarily know what that means. It just kind of popped into my head. But like, well, the way it's edited and the, the way that that the style of of horror that's being shown um you know it was creep show's got its fair share of, of blood and stuff like that but it's not lots and lots of like you know disemboweling and things like that kind of stuff that you see in, in demon knight plus there's a religious aspect too which you know can scare some some people and some kids yes yeah so, i mean i said i didn't even really take that in consideration but yes i mean i suppose if that's something that is a strong personal belief of the viewer. Um, it could potentially hold a little more place in, in reality to them than, you know, zombies right. and vampires and, and such. But to me, it's all the same. So I'm not just, <laughs> yeah. And I, I think something like wax work, I mean, I think I would show that to, to an eight year old if, if they've seen 
a couple of horror films, but they're not really committed. That's fine. But this would be a good, this would be a good segue one, you know, um, if they could handle creep show, I think they could handle this. Um, it'd be a slight step up, but I think they'd be able to handle it. Um, now waxwork two, I think the biggest challenge there would be keeping their interest. Uh, yes. because it does drag quite a lot there in the middle. Yeah. And I, and I felt that myself. So dead, hell yeah. no. I don't right. think an eight-year-old's watching Dawn of the Dead. Um, no, just the intensity but, uh, of that movie, I think, would just... It's... Yeah. Dawn of the Dead, definitely a no. Waxwork 2, I'm going to say no, because of the... I, I think it's, a, like you said, it's a pacing issue. And yeah, Waxwork is a... Maybe on the side of no, but then yeah. again, you have a much better understanding of where your daughter's at. <laughs> right. No. And I think you know, the other thing too, that I want to do with this kind of segment for when it pops up too, is, is just kind of think a little bit about, you know, like when, what makes a movie appropriate and inappropriate? Is it sex? Is it violence? Is it a combination of the two? Is it a level of intimacy and, and gore that can be explained? And of course, a lot of this is going to depend on your kids and what they're exposed to and what they've seen before. But, you know, I, I think, what would be a good horror film? Since, you know, today all of our films have been horror films. Um, yes. What would be a good horror film to introduce to a kid? You know, I mean, I think my, do you remember your first, your first horror film that was like, like you shouldn't have seen it at that age. You were way wow, too Wow, shouldn't have seen it? Um, you saw it anyway. Man, it's probably, honestly, it's probably something you showed to me, but. Um, probably. Probably. I remember seeing the Child's Play movies we saw and some of the Elm Street movies I know I saw at your house. I think the first one I felt like, ooh, I just, you know, I saw something that I'm not supposed to be watching is I saw Evil Dead when I was like eight or nine. The original Evil Dead. Um, which wow. That one's pretty intense too. Yeah, which I was super unimpressed with for the first like half an hour and then like, you know, glued to the screen for the rest of the movie um i was at a friend's house and ended up being the only person awake by the time the movie ended yeah i mean it was a memorable experience because he lived out in the country and like it just <laughs> the movie itself was not really that scary to me um in fact i thought it was kind of funny i think at points uh, but after the lights went out after it was over and you're kind of in the dark and a place you don't know and you know so, so it ended up being a little bit effective i also remember thinking that it was mm -hmm. some of the most you know disgusting and explicit special effects i'd ever seen in my life because it was just yeah um yeah i mean up to that well, point i probably hadn't really seen a whole lot of you know outside of you know children's films a lot of effects movies because there mm -hmm. are a lot of effects movies made for children you know we grew up in an era of jim henson and uh um, steven spielberg and that was making effects heavy films for, for kids, which, you know, I would always recommend any of those films for your children. Um, <laughs> but yeah, not evil dead. Yeah. I mean, I think some of my <laughs> first favorite movies, you know, some of my fa earliest favorite films were things like ghostbusters and star Wars and, and the, and Raiders of the lost Ark and temple of doom were some of the earliest movies I remember watching over and over again. But as far as my first horror film uh an american werewolf in london 
yeah. You know, which yeah. came out the same year I was born in 1981. I think I saw it when I was only about three or four. Uh, we were at a friend's house who who had a, a VHS and they had a copy of it. And, you know, this was in the 80s. That was a huge deal. So you knew somebody who had a, a VCR, or I think it was probably a Beta, or maybe even Laserdisc. But I that was that was a pretty big deal. And I remember watching American Werewolf in London and being completely blown away because there was actually like a making of featurette after the movie. And I sat and watched that, too. And it was just how they made this. It's still to this day is my favorite film of all time. It yeah. is, is American Werewolf yeah, in London. That it's is still definitely my one that belongs film. on everybody's top ten. Li- no, I'm just kidding, but I'm not going to tell you what your top ten it's, list should be. <laughs> yes, it, it's a favorite of mine uh, but as it, well. It's, it's, I, I didn't. It's a phenomenal. I mean, it's scary. It's funny. It's it's got groundbreaking special effects, and and it's it's kind of a nice package. You know, we were talking yeah. about movies tonight that that were like uh, the whole package in one film, and I think this is that's one of them. Uh, yeah, I saw that when I was way 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 too young, but <laughs> right. still watched it over and over again. Well, and well, then again, and- we also grew up when the number one music video at the time was Thriller. Yeah, and that was just because you brought up Land- or American Werewolf and. London, uh, it reminded mm-hmm. me of that, and yeah, that might have really been my first modern horror experience as a kid, is watching Thriller, and it scared the bejesus yeah. out of me, especially yeah. the beginning sequence with the Catman. Um, I couldn't watch it. Yeah, like, the extended uh, version. Yeah, and it, it's just so good, and uh, it's still so good. Everybody, if you've, seriously, if it, I'm sure there's nobody out there that would be listening to this that hasn't seen Thriller. But if you haven't, or you're kind of shrugging at it because you know it's a Michael Jackson music video or whatever, definitely go check that out. It's it's like a it's a, a mini horror film that all of the great things we said about Waxworks being a loving tribute to horror. It is another one of those things that just like really gets it. Like it just every little thing about it is is a perfect tribute to the horror genre. And yeah, um, yep, and it's beautifully handled by John Landis. Yes, and Rick Baker. So, so and, between, um, um, I can remember being as young as four or five years old and I used to record during daytime television. They used to play the universal classics on uh, daytime TV and I would record them on our VCR and then just like burned out the tapes on, um, Dracula and the invisible man and, uh, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. So, so those are my, my bread and butter that, that those are my introduction to horror and still many of them are my favorite. Absolutely favorite, favorite films. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think my mom started buying me some of those. Like, I remember getting Frankenstein and on VHS, Dracula, a creature from the Black Lagoon. But I remember also, and I think I still have the the cassette copy of this one, too, is my original, one of the first horror things my parents ever got on me was uh, the original Night of the Living Dead and Reefer Madness. It was a video with a double feature on it. So Night of Living Dead, Reefer yeah, Madness. I that. <laughs> it's 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 yeah. Watching Reefer Madness when you're like ten, you have so many <laughs> questions. So many questions. Yeah, I just want to mention that stay tuned because uh, we're, we're going to be trying to do this essentially as a season. So coming up this season, we're, we're going to have a couple of special guests. Um, come and help us talk about some other forgotten franchises and kind of gems that we found in the bargain bin. So make sure you're tuning in because we've got some really special guests coming up real soon and uh, it's going to be something pretty big. But thanks all for listening.
You have been listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. You just can't let them go? Go. Stay on the road. Keep clear to the moors. We want to take this opportunity to thank you for listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast and remind you to find us on social media on Facebook at facebook.com slash videojunkyardpodcast, on Twitter at videojunkpod, and on Instagram as videojunkyardpodcast, all one word. want to thank you again for listening, and keep digging. Who knows what treasures you'll find in the Video Junkyard. <laughs>